everyone, and welcome to Myth Matters, a bi-weekly podcast of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your host and personal mythologist, Catherine Svela. Wherever you may be in this wide, beautiful, crazy world of ours, you are part of this story circle. Last week, we celebrated Thanksgiving here in the United States, and this started a reflection on thankfulness and gratitude that led to a fairy tale called The Three Feathers, collected by the Brothers Grimm, which I'm going to share with you today, and uh, some thoughts about imagination, certainty, and the power of possibility. The wise ones tell us that true gratitude, gratitude beyond the platitude, is gratitude for everything, for all of it, in the face of all of it, for consciousness, for life itself, to simply be here, to be grateful for the lessons and the challenges, even for the suffering we endure for what we don't have and don't understand, as well as the abundance. And I find myself wondering what beauty and weirdness, (laughs) what belonging and what mystery goes by unappreciated, not even experienced in my life, when I get fixated on what I think that I want, on my goals, and what I know needs to happen. I'm sure that you've heard about this complete gratitude before, and you may be further along than I in the process of living it. And you might be wondering what this practice of gratitude for all of it, of thankfulness at being alive, has to do with myth. Simply put, myths and old stories are life-affirming. This is their primary purpose. No matter what happens, life is the primary value. Hence, all of the happy endings, the marriages and pregnancies, the sleeping princesses and palaces full of people and animals who have turned to stone that wake up, and the vanquished villains who were addicted to power or sought to choke off the energies of renewal or community, and were defeated. In the last three podcasts, I told you the ancient Sumerian myth of Gilgamesh. If you think back over this story, you see a lot of trouble, unfulfilled desires, and death. And yet, in the end, there is satisfaction, completion, fulfillment, and answers to the questions that burn at the heart of the story. Questions about how to live with an awareness of death, how one achieves a form of immortality, and how to live with appreciation and gratitude. When Gilgamesh, for example, made his long journey to see Utnapishtim, the one man who had been granted immortality by the gods, he met a woman named Sidiri the maker of beer and wine, who lived on the shore of the ocean by the garden of the gods. When Gilgamesh told her 
that he looked weary and beaten because he grieved for his dead friend Inkadu and was now afraid of his own death, Sidiri told him, you're never going to find the life that you're searching for because when the gods created humans, they made them mortal. But, Gilgamesh, you can fill your belly with good food and drink. You can dance and laugh. You can sleep in a comfortable bed. You can love your wife, have friends, and hold your children. You can find great happiness in these things, Gilgamesh, and this, too, is the lot of mortal man. In this Sumerian myth of Gilgamesh, we end up understanding that you face death by living life to its fullest and savoring the intense sweetness of experiences that must end. You achieve immortality through telling your story and being remembered by others. Now, there are other mythologies about death and the possibility of an afterlife that do not place a high value on being alive and breathing here on this material plane. The Christian story about heaven and the eternal joy that all of the faithful believers will ultimately enjoy is the best known and most influential of those mythologies in Western culture. This mythology has been and continues to be very powerful in the Western consciousness. Whether or not you subscribe to it, it has shaped Western ideas about the body, earth, and the value of physical life in the material world in ways that none of us can completely escape. Now, in brief, the view is that the body is a troublesome source of sinful influences and impulses that will be cast off when the soul begins its joyful, pure life with God in heaven. In the meantime, spiritual life and practice should be one's primary focus and concern. The earth, the material world, none of this is holy or sacred. It has been created for people to use while they're here, but the real rewards are heavenly. There are variations on the theme, of course, and there is a mystical streak in Christianity that uh, does not tell the story as I just laid it out. But Christianity is not, as most commonly interpreted, a life-affirming mythology in the way that I'm using that term. Although it contains the exhortation to be grateful for whatever comes, because it calls us away from this world of the senses and material form. This mythology, however, is, then, an important piece of the ongoing struggle with death and the mystery and fear that surrounds it. Yes, <laughs> it's still wrestling with Gilgamesh's problem. It's that fear of death revisited, only a different answer to the questions that he asked, is offered. The answer eludes us, my friends, and so what are we to do? Keep the mystery in life alive, is my advice. I don't know the secret of death and what follows. 
This is a conversation each of us must have with life and the mystery. But I see a connection between the ability to have that conversation about death and engage with the mythologies, maybe you call them religions or spiritual traditions, uh, that include stories about death and the daily challenge of breathing, eating, and the rest with gratitude for being alive. The connection is a healthy imagination. You know that imagination is not merely fancy and fantasy. Imagination is a natural function of human consciousness. To imagine is to be fully and freely human. Some people exercise their imagination with more conscious intent than others, but it takes a lot to shut down the imagination. Unfortunately, science and Christianity, the twin engines of Western culture, have been in the business of choking off and denying the necessity and power of imagination for centuries. Thank the goddess for poets, artists, and visionaries of all stripes, my friends, for children and childhood, and yes, for suffering, because those who survive and become wise through it tell us over and over that it is imagination that saves. Imagining a different situation, imagining a different future is the first step in realizing it. Imagination leads to possibility, and it is that link, that move to possibility, that I believe allows us to be in a state of gratitude. Imagination, as James Hillman said, is destiny, because we live in the relationship between what we imagine, what we allow to be possible, what we see, attempt, and become. Working with myths and stories and the way that we do here on Myth Matters is a powerful practice for feeding your imagination by entering the space of the story, by expanding your understanding of symbol and metaphor and therefore of meaning, and by living with an awareness of story, of your personal story, of the stories of your culture, and the myths that shape and contain your world and view of reality. Working with stories helps us build imagination, to flex it and develop that capacity, to trust the reality <laughs> that it creates. And imagination is required to enter the realm of possibility, which is, as I say, where I believe that true gratitude is found. Now, this led me to the fairy tale called The Three Feathers. So let's turn to the story. I want to invite you to relax and let go, to just enter the space of the story and notice what attracts your attention. This is an invitation to find the meaning that this story holds for you right now. The story begins once upon a time with an old king who needs a successor and his three sons. 
You note the retirement of the old king is the message of renewal that I was talking about earlier, that life-affirming need for things, for cycles to begin and end. The two eldest sons are clever and ambitious, and the youngest is rather quiet and modest. So the others call him dummy. Now, the king proposes a contest to determine which of his sons will inherit the throne. Whoever brings back the most beautiful carpet will be king. He takes the three young men outside the castle walls and holds up three feathers to the breeze and tells them that each of them must go in the direction of one of the feathers. One feather flies east, one feather flies west, and one lands just a few feet beyond the castle walls. The two older brothers head east and west, laughing to themselves about the plight of poor Dummy, who besides being a bit of a loser in their eyes, must conduct his search so close to home. Good luck, Dummy, they think to themselves, and because they are certain of victory, they don't exert very much effort in the search for a beautiful carpet, and they quickly return home with the first old scrap that they find. Dummy is discouraged, but he proceeds to examine the location of the feather, and woe, to his great surprise, he finds a trap door, and lifting that up, a staircase down into the earth, and at the bottom of the stairs, there is a big wooden door. Stranger than anything he ever imagined possible, right? So why not keep going? Dummy knocks on the door and meets a great toad. The fat toad asked Dummy what he wanted. Well, said Dummy, I would like the most beautiful and finest carpet. Then the fat toad called out to the crowd of young toads that surrounded him, her, and said, Maiden, green and small, hopping toad, hop to and fro, bring me the large box. And one of the young toads brought a box, and the fat toad opened it and pulled out an incredible carpet, which the toad gave Dummy. This carpet was so beautiful and so fine the like of it had, it had never been, it had just, it couldn't have been woven in the world above. Dummy thanked the toad and took the carpet and he climbed back out. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the other two thought that their brother was so stupid that he would not find anything to bring home. So they didn't put much effort into their part of the project. They brought back some pieces of coarse cloth from the first shepherd's wife they came to, and they had taken those home to the king. And at the same time that they arrived home, Dummy came in, bringing his beautiful carpet. When the king saw it, he was astounded and said, it's only right that the kingdom should go to my youngest son. However, the other two were 
very upset about this. They, and, and they gave their father no peace. They said it would just be impossible for Dummy to be king because he didn't understand anything. And they asked him to declare another contest. So the king said, all right, he who brings me the most beautiful ring shall inherit the kingdom. And he once again led the three brothers outside and blew the three feathers into the air. Again, the two oldest brothers went to the east and to the west, and the dummy's feather again flew straight ahead and fell down just a few feet away next to the door in the ground. Once again, dummy climbed down to the fat toad, and this time he told the toad that he needed the most beautiful ring. The toad had the box brought out again and gave him a ring that glistened so brilliantly with precious stones and was so beautiful that no goldsmith on earth could possibly have made it. The two oldest brothers were once again laughing at Dummy and his bad luck and general ineptitude, and so they once again didn't put any effort at all into their search. They didn't really even find a ring. Instead, they just drove some nails out of an old wagon ring and bent those and brought those back to the king. However, when Dummy got back and he presented his ring, the king once again said, I'm sorry, but the kingdom belongs to my youngest son. And once again, the two eldest could not live with this, and they tormented the king, their father, endlessly and begged him to declare a third contest. And so in the end, he gave in and said, Okay, okay, the one who brings home the most beautiful woman shall have the kingdom. And once again, he blew the three feathers in the air, and they flew in the same directions as before, And without hesitating, Dummy just went right for the feather that had landed just a few feet outside the castle walls, and he went back down to the fat toad and said, I'm supposed to take home the most beautiful woman. Oh, said the toad, the most beautiful woman. Hmm, she's not here at the moment, but you shall have her nonetheless. The fat toad gave him a hollowed out yellow turnip to which were harnessed six little mice. Dummy looked at this and sadly said, what am I to do with this? And the fat toad said, just put one of my little toads inside it. So Dummy picked up one of the little toads from the group and he set it inside the yellow coach. And the little toad was scarcely inside When it turned into a beautiful, beautiful young lady, the turnip turned into a coach, and the six mice turned into horses. Dummy was so excited, he kissed the young lady and raced away with the horses and brought her to the king. His brothers came along shortly after, and they had given no effort to find a beautiful woman, but just brought along the first peasant women that they'd come upon. The king surveyed the group and said, well, 
After my death, the kingdom belongs to my youngest son. And again, the two eldest put up a huge hue and cry, and the king thought he was going to go deaf. It was so loud. So finally he said, okay, okay, we'll try one more thing. And the older brother said, look, you can't allow dummy to become king, so we should let's have one more contest. And I know they proposed that the woman who could jump through a hoop that was hanging in the middle of the hall at the palace, that, that whoever's woman could do that, he, he should be king. He should be king. That's the one. And they were thinking the peasant women are very strong and they'll be able to make that leap really easily. But this dainty lady that Dummy brought along, I mean, she's going to, she'll probably fall and break her neck. Well, the old king said, okay, gave in to that contest. And the two peasant women did jump through the hoop. But they were a little plump and ungainly, and uh, each one of them fell and broke an arm and broke a leg. And then the beautiful lady that Dummy had brought home jumped. And having been a toad, (laughs) she jumped through the hoop as lightly as a deer. Now, after all of this, the protests had to stop. There was no more negotiating. And so it is that Dummy received the crown, and he ruled wisely for a very long time. Now, the three feathers is similar to many other fairy tales in structure and tone and the existence of magical helpers and events. I'm offering it to you as an example of the importance of imagination and as a story that delivers this message about imagination. The two eldest brothers, and the king for that matter, lose the contest and are unfit for the job because they think they already know the outcome. But nothing that happens in this story is expected or predicted by the characters. The impossible, that is to say the unimaginable, happens. But the two eldest brothers, they think that they know. They think they know the full realm of possibility. And so they underestimate Dummy and the powerful forces at work in life. And Dummy wins because he's willing to imagine that what appears to be a dead end might contain a door. As Anatole France said, to imagine is everything. To know is nothing at all. The eldest brothers are rather dull, don't you think, given their self-assured lack of curiosity? They strike me as the type of people who have many definite opinions, especially definite opinions about other people and the limitations of other people's lives and characters, and few good stories to tell. I find myself reflecting on Dummy and the sense of possibility that led him to enter the contest in the first place. He took his place alongside his father, the king, and watched the flight of the feathers despite the low expectations that surrounded him. I mean, they called him dummy. And yet, 
There he was. And although he was very discouraged when the feather just fell a few feet from the castle door, he investigated. When he found that trap door and opened it and saw the flight of stairs leading who knows where down into the earth, I imagine that he might have hesitated for a moment or two that he might have peered down into the unfamiliar darkness and considered, who built those stairs? Where did they lead? What could be lying in wait at the end? What motivated Dummy to go down into the earth, do you think? Maybe he read Rilke's letters to a young poet on a quiet afternoon and came across this advice. Rilke writes, We must assume our existence as broadly as we can. Everything, even the unheard of, must be possible in it. That is, at bottom, the only courage that is demanded of us. To have courage for the most strange, the most singular, and the most inexplicable that we may encounter. Dummy had courage and curiosity. And I think he also had a powerful blend of ambition and imagination. I think that he imagined that he could be king. And down he went. What are the possibilities that arise from your particular blend of ambition and imagination? What do you see as possible that may be laughed at or scoffed at by others? Maybe it's something you don't even tell other people because you know that they will think that you're a fool. And what do these possibilities, even aspirations, have to do with gratitude, with a humble posture of thanksgiving and accepting it all? Well, I think that it leads to the view that everything is a lesson and an opportunity. I think it leads us to the place where we can truly say, yes, even this. It's an opening to the idea, to the possibility that there is a possibility, which is a gift of the wider life of the imagination that brings us to that place of true gratitude. And this is more than a matter of personal satisfaction. I said earlier that great institutions and so-called Western civilization have tried to eradicate the human imagination and its fruits for centuries. They have fostered dogmas of a mechanical, measurable world on one hand, and a world of unexamined belief and credos and texts assembled by powerful men with self-proclaimed connections to the divine on the other. The majority of people, the ordinary folk among whom I place myself, (laughs) we're supposed to go along with the experts and the authorities. Questions that shift the focus, that shine the light, or change the terms of the conversation coming from our quarters are not welcome. 
questions with the power to change things. And these questions spring from a good imagination. Ursula Le Guin, science fiction author who has written books that have borne a prescient (laughs) relationship to the unimaginable futures for decades, writes, the exercise of imagination is dangerous to those who profit from the way things are because it has the power to show that the way things are is not permanent, not universal, not necessary. The way things are is not permanent, not universal, not necessary. That's right. It's a matter of story. Yes. Wow. Amen, Laguin. So, my friends, you seem stuck without direction or options. A trapdoor appears at your feet. The toad speaks. What you need appears and you step into a future that was unlikely, even impossible. The security offered by our manufactured certainty can be so tempting. A world mapped and measured can be controlled. Risks can be calculated. People can be judged and assigned their roles. The sanctity of the prescribed self can be protected. Or so it seems. (laughs) To stay in the mystery, to allow ourselves to be surprised, dumbfounded, even wrong about the world, about all of the others, about people, the cosmos, the arc of our own lives, and our inherent significance. (sighs) This is the path to gratitude and thanksgiving and to the fullest experience of the time we are granted. It is also the path to personal and cultural renewal. And possibility. The possibility of a world and a human culture that has not existed in our recorded history. This is what fuels my quest and my engagement with the mystery and also my work as a mythologist. Myth Matters is part of my mission to deepen the appreciation of the power of myth. And I'm so grateful for to like-minded listeners who share this podcast, who email me with ideas and questions, and give me some financial support. Myth Matters is listener-supported, and I want to give a special thanks this week to the new Myth Matters patrons on Patreon, Carrie, Fred Burke, and Julia Errett. Thank you so much for making the leap and joining me on Patreon. If you're finding value in this podcast, then I hope that you will consider joining them, joining me. (laughs) There's a link to Patreon on the homepage of my website, mythicmojo.com. And if you are listening to Myth Matters on the Mythic Mojo website already, the button to take you to Patreon is in the sidebar. As I mentioned, Myth Matters is part of my mission If you visit mythicmojo.com, you will also find information about my other offerings and ways that you can explore the mythic dimension of your life with me. Working with the old stories can change your life.
I want to close with a poem by W.S. Merwin that astrologer Rob Bresney included in his most recent email. It's titled, Thanks. Listen, with the night falling, we are saying thank you. We are stopping on the bridges to bow from the railings. We are running out of the glass rooms with our mouths full of food to look at the sky and say thank you. We are standing by the water, thanking it, standing by the windows, looking out in our directions, back from a series of hospitals, back from a mugging, after funerals, we are saying thank you. After the news of the dead, whether or not we knew them, we are saying thank you. Over telephones, we are saying thank you, and in doorways and in the backs of cars and in elevators, remembering wars and the police at the door and the beatings on stairs, we are saying thank you. In the banks, we are saying thank you. In the faces of the officials and the rich and of all who will never change, we go on saying thank you. Thank you. With the animals dying around us, our lost feelings, we are saying thank you. With the forests falling faster than the minutes of our lives, we are saying thank you. With the words going out like cells of a brain, with the cities growing over us, we are saying thank you faster and faster. With nobody listening, we are saying thank you. We are saying thank you and waving, dark though it is. That was W.S. Merwin. Dark though it is. This time of year, the darkness gets longer and longer and longer. And the question, my friends, which is all about imagination and possibility, is will this be the darkness of tomb or womb or both? Is this the darkness that we use to gestate new dreams, and new possibilities. And that's it for me, Catherine Savela, and Myth Matters. Feel free to contact me if you have questions or comments about today's program. If you're new to Myth Matters, I invite you to head over to the Mythic Mojo website where you'll find information about the podcast, a variety of ways to subscribe and listen from your favorite podcast platform, and a transcript of this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Please tune in next time. And until then, happy myth-making and keep the mystery in your life alive. Alive.